What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. and welcome back to another episode. This week, I was lucky enough to speak to entrepreneur and co-founder of Matcha Maiden, Sarah Davidson, also known as Spoonful of Sarah. Sarah started her first business after suffering from a case of complete adrenal exhaustion. As a young lawyer looking for a caffeine-free fix to supplement her serious coffee habit, she ordered 10 kilos of green tea from Japan without realizing its sheer volume. She then started up a side hustle to shift the nine kilos she didn't need and Matcha Maiden was born. With no business experience or investment behind them, Sarah and her partner Nick built Matcha Maiden from scratch, followed by plant-based cafe Matcha Milk Bar. In this episode, we talk about self-doubt and fear, and I know that is a struggle for a lot of us, how journaling is so helpful to get us through challenging times as well as great times how to adopt an attitude of gratitude, how Sarah wrote her new book in record time, and some helpful tips when it comes to self-care and live a healthy life that is right for you. And so much more. It's a long episode and it's so good. Let's get right into it. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to my podcast. I'm very excited to have you on. I am so, so honored to be here. You know how much of a, an incredible influence you've been on my journey. And I fangirled you really hard when I first met you. I'm fangirling you every time I see you. It is just such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you so much. So before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to share how we met and also the beautiful message that I got from you this year when um, we were going through really tough times with Kiki K. So I'll start with how we met. So I don't know if you remember this, Sarah, but um, we're doing some work with you as an influencer, etc., through Kiki K. But I have a list of 101 people I want to meet, and you are on my list. And uh, the reason why I wanted to meet you was because I was so inspired by the way you started your business and, and being so health conscious and being such a beautiful soul. And so I put you on my list of people that I want to meet. And then while I was working on my dream life, as it's a it's a work in progress and changes every single day and and it's not a perfect dream life in any way. But on Fridays I had that I wanted to first go to my kids' schools because that was a 
chance for me to be part of their schooling. I still am not the perfect parent that are at the school every day. So I um, wanted to do that on Friday morning. And then I always go to, not always, I often go to a new uh, cafe. And um, when I've been to your cafe, I was like, I want to meet this girl. And uh, I um, put you on my list of people to meet. And then I just reached out to you. So it was part of me, me having an inspiring Friday. And that's how we met at your cafe. First time we met in person. I remember that. I actually remember the photo we took as well and what we were wearing and everything. I, I just remember thinking how much Kiki K and everything that you stood for and everything you allow in us to dream big dreams had been part of my life from a university student who hadn't even entered the workforce and who had absolutely no idea where she was meant to go and what direction life was meant to take her in. I remember that me and then the me who was a corporate lawyer and then the me who moved into business. One of the constants was Kiki K and dreaming by writing down and everything that I read about you and the way that you had dreamt up Kiki K and then brought that to life and embraced writing things down, your 3am list, and even making lists of people you wanted to meet on a Friday was such an inspiration. So for you to have reached out in person was like, I'm the stationary gods calling out to me. It was just so (laughs) surreal and so lovely. I expected you to kind of walk in with this golden aura around you. And it was just, You were so lovely and so down to earth and I couldn't believe it was literally anyone who knows me remembers the Kiki K stationery I've had since uni. So you've gotten me through many, many stages in my life and it's was just so such a wonderful full circle to get to meet you in person. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The same. I love you to share with us as a child. Did you have a dream or something you wanted to become or something you wanted to do when you were older? Tell us about that if you had one. Yes, absolutely. I had many, many dreams. I've always been a bit of a dreamer. I I kind of dream a little bit too much and I dream as if I have an infinite amount of energy and time and then, you know, struggle to squeeze it all in. But my biggest dream as a child was to be a ballerina. Like many young girls, I think so many of us spend our early days in tutus and dancing around. A lot of us sort of do ballet as young girls. But I had to A-type overachieve at everything. And so ballet was, I loved it so much. I was like, I'm going to make this my career. I'm going to become a professional ballerina and took myself so seriously, got really rigorous in my training. And and the whole first 15 years of my life was really pursuing that dream of becoming a ballerina. So I... I've always been, I think you know I was adopted from Korea, so have always been very, it's led to two things. The first is just an acute sense of appreciation for sliding doors moments and the fact that we do have so much to be grateful for, but particularly in my life, I, you know, but for one small thing of being given a chance to live somewhere else, I could have had a dramatically different life. So I'm always very eager to leave no stone unturned. And it also gave me just this thirst for learning and experience because I feel so lucky to be here. I always want to do everything and I want to do it 150% to the best ability. (laughs) So I have always tried everything, sport, ballet, art, music, uh, but ballet was the one that kind of took up most of my childhood. And uh, looking back, I really thought it was my life until I threw everything at it. I almost gave up my studies to go full time. And it was probably the second big sliding doors moment when my mum sat me down and said, 
it's a very volatile career in terms of if you're injured or, you know, if anything slightly goes wrong or there's such a limited amount of places, you know, just finish school so you have a backup. She's always talking to keep as many doors open as possible and not make really narrow choices too early without exploring all the opportunities. So she managed to convince me to stay at school and finish school. And of course, by the time I finished school, I'd forgotten the ballerina dream once I discovered parties and boys and you know, having free time, I gave myself a break. I kind of did the reverse. I was a very adult, grown-up, organised person and then I went a bit wild in the middle when I realised what I'd been missing out on. And then once I realised I really did love intellectual stimulation and I'm, there's a very nerdy academic side of me, I thought, oh, maybe this is what I want to apply myself to. And so very quickly what I had thought for my whole life was my one dream. It started to pivot and I started to realise actually maybe we have dreams for a season and they're not always forever dreams and that's okay. So tell us about how you went into law because I find it fascinating. A lot of people who I meet through the dream life path that I have chosen, that I meet so many people who start in law and then end up somewhere else, which you have. So I love to first understand how did you how did you get into law and then how did you get well maybe not so much about how you got into law because you kind of cover that here but in terms of what made you change and get you onto the journey you are right now what is a very interesting part of dreaming and dreams is that I was so directed when I thought I wanted to be a ballerina it was really clear what I was supposed to do but as soon as I sort of had to drop that part of my identity and it was almost like learning to dream from the beginning because I once I shed that skin I was like well who am I then if I'm not going to be a ballerina what is my life going to be and I think if you're someone who does have lots of different interests and passions, it's a wonderful thing, but it also makes decision-making very difficult and I'm indecisive at the best of times. So I sort of had this struggle then balancing the really academic side of myself with the performing arts creative side and trying to work out what jobs would allow both to thrive and balance somewhere in the middle. And at school and even at uni, I think you have such a narrow understanding of what jobs exist. You really think there are really discrete buckets of careers and there's nothing in between. There's no gray areas. And maybe there weren't, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe it was a little bit more kind of delineated, but I didn't choose law because I wanted to become a lawyer. I think I chose it more as a process of elimination. I happened, yeah. happened to do really well in the subjects I chose and got to the, the time where at the time you think you're making your forever decision for life. And I thought, well, I can only choose something that's going to delay the decision longer and give me more time to open more doors rather than close them. And I, I think that's why a lot of people do end up in law and then leave is because it's almost for the non-decision makers who want to do something worthy and objectively successful and use their brain and apply their talents and learn as much as they can. But we're so young when we graduate uni, it's almost too young to choose your forever job. So from my experience, I, I don't think many of my friends did law because they wanted to be lawyers. Most of us were just like, this is a great launch pad and I'll make of it what I will without being wedded to that being our forever career. But then once you get there, you get swept up in the prestige and you get, you know, there's such a steep learning curve. There's so much glitz and glam and, and there's big highs as much as there is really, really hard work. And I found myself 
very, very grateful, firstly, to have a job. I'd been through the GFC at uni and knew how difficult it was to even get a full-time job, let alone a really good one at a coveted international law firm. And looking back, I never got to the stage like many corporates do where I was trying to leave. I was never desperately unhappy. I was never hating going to work in the morning and, you know, thinking I'd made this terrible decision. And Actually, that scares me more that I I thought that was happiness. I thought I'd made my forever decision and I thought, you know, what more could I want? I've got financial security. I've got a 10-year plan. Everyone thinks I'm successful. What else really matters in that equation? But now what I realise is I was settling for good, which is not a bad thing at all, but comfort and habit and not knowing any better will stop you from investigating whether you could be great, whether there's there's more than just good. And now I think I get goosebumps to think how long I could have lasted there without ever realising that a massive part of my personality, which is the creative side, was getting absolutely no time to flourish. And it was only... There's actually no short way to tell this story, but I'll try. No, that's absolutely. I love this. It's so interesting, and it's 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 actually. Uh, I meet so many people that have gone a similar path to you, so I think this is very relevant for my listeners for sure. Yeah, I think I've realised now that unless you're actively unhappy, it's very hard to have a, an incentive to make a change because security and comfort and habit is and familiarity is really blinding it can blind you to considering anything else or even questioning whether something else might be more suited to you and so it was only a happy accident that kind of broke that what I call now and I didn't realize it at the time I was on an autopilot circuit of being very gratified by climbing ladders and getting promotions and being successful and earning titles and you know it was very clear what the progress was and I felt good doing that and being busy all the time. But I ended up going to Rwanda of all places <laughs> with my now husband who has a creative agency, The Bushy Creative, and Nick had sponsored a big project that uh, funded a school in country Rwanda. So we got to go there for a month to sort of see the results that they had been able to uh, you know, allow for these children and and we got to build some classrooms and it was the most incredibly transformative experience. But two big things happened. The first was I expected to go there and be incredibly overwhelmed by gratitude for what we have, which is, of course, one thing you experience. But the bigger realisation was that I saw happiness that was much purer than the happiness that we have back home. And I sort of was so confused by that. I was like, how can these children be so joyful with a a leaf for 12 hours, whereas back home we create devices and jobs and schedules to be happy and then it actually makes us so anxious about all those things that we can't be happy. So it was my first sort of inkling that maybe happiness and success weren't the same thing. Maybe they were different activities or different kind of categories of life and I wasn't making room for happiness because I thought I was successful, so I should be happy. And then the second thing was I got a gut parasite over there just from eating off the street and doing lots of silly tourist things and came home, had absolutely no connection with my body at the time. I was eating a broccoli and going to spin class at five in the morning and thought, tick, I've done my health and wellness. I'm so good. Like I should be, you know, broccoli is the answer, right? That's all I need. But (laughs) I had no concept of rest or downtime or, you know, I would had no boundaries. I would take my work home on the weekend because I thought that was like suits, you know, how fancy that I had work to do on the weekend. And I lost 15 kilograms 
and already I'm a 12 year old boy in my body. So I didn't have that much weight to lose, but the gut parasite was just wreaking havoc on my system. And I, I totally ignored all the signs. So I collapsed, which is again, a bit of a very, <laughs> bit of an unfortunately common story that leads to an aha moment. But a lot of us refuse to accept we have limits until they're thrust upon us. And I had a complete health breakdown. I couldn't go back to work. I was bedridden. I think years of ignoring the signs meant that life teach, I think life teaches you a lesson over and over until you learn it. And nothing short of a full wiping off the planet was going to teach me that I had limits and I had to learn to respect them. I was banned from coffee in that process because I would get the shakes and the jitters if I had a cup. And I was drinking like five to six to maybe even 10 cups a day at the time. So it was a bit of a disaster. And it was a couple of months later, my first deal back, I got sent to Hong Kong to work on it at the law firm's headquarters. And again, randomest turn of events, Rwanda to Hong Kong to Australia. But again, I think sometimes you've got to be as open-minded as possible to allow fate to find you. And I found matcha over there. In Asia, matcha is not the buzzword that it was in the West. It was centuries old and has been long since hailed for its health benefits and being a gentler form of caffeination on your body. So it was actually discovered by the Zen Buddhist monks who needed prolonged energy over three or four hours rather than like the boost and then the crash that you might get from coffee. And so my body could tolerate this miracle powder and I got hooked and then came home. And I'm sure between Sweden and Australia, you've had this experience of something being everywhere in one country and surprisingly no one's discovered it in the other. And I came home and it was just wasn't anywhere. But everyone was used to green powders. Green smoothies were all the rage. We were drinking things that tasted horrible, spirulina, kale, whereas matcha tastes just like green tea, which a lot of people already like. And I just couldn't understand why... It hadn't taken off and it was literally only out of my own selfish desire to have a healthy supply of this powder for myself (laughs) that Nick and I started a business just to close the gap, just to, you know, have a supply chain and we accidentally ordered too many kilograms (laughs) that arrived and were far too much for two people and it all just came out of a hobby that was literally just for us to sell maybe one or two bags to our family and friends. I figured if I sold one, even just one bag to a stranger, I could put it on my LinkedIn that I was an entrepreneur and then I'd tick the box and go back to my merry life. But as soon as I saw what happened when I activated that other side of my brain that had always actually been the dominant side of my brain if I looked, if I really took a long, hard look at my past, that suddenly made what I thought was fulfillment in the law firm, that work suddenly paled in comparison. And by contrast, I saw, oh my gosh, I've been settling and not even investigating that there might be something else out there. And this this work makes me want to jump out of bed in the morning. This work makes me never want to stop working. This is everything that I've always loved doing. It's people, it's branding, it's creation, like creativity. It's just making puns and playing with words and every part of what it took to bring a product to the market is every part of what I now know is what I was meant to do. And so over the next couple of months, what we launched as a a total experiment, I literally had zero expectations. And it's funny, I have more self-doubt now than I did then because then I didn't even think it was a real thing. I just was not I didn't think anyone even knew it was us. So it was, who cares if we failed? No one would even know. Yeah. 
but we sold out in a week. And then six months later, I left my job. And then six years later, I got to jump on a podcast with one of my role models. <laughs> I, I love this story because it really showcased the, the hard yards we sometimes have to go through before knowing what we need to do in terms of fulfilling our dreams, whatever that is. And I, I often find people are looking, but they don't know where to look. And sometimes you have to go through those hard things. And sometimes the hard things is the purpose of your life. And you then are able to help others go through difficult times. And um, it's no fun when you go through it, but there is lots of silver linings. And look at you, your story is just a great one where, where you really thought you were on the right path and then had a breakdown and then um, and now you're loving it. And I think getting out of bed in the morning and loving what you do is just so important. And um, I feel like your story will be so inspiring for so many listeners wanting to start their own business but not sure how. So how do you go from um, your kind of, I guess, structured way excuse me, ignorance, when it comes to your uh, profession, because I don't know much about law, but I'm assuming that you would have, you know, had a role and um, and be really quite clear compared to an entrepreneurial journey, which is, I guess, completely opposite <laughs> in, in my experience. <laughs> but you kind of, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I, I, we're going to talk about self-doubt because you mentioned that. I can so relate to that. But when you jump into an entrepreneurial journey, you don't know what you don't know and sometimes you don't know where to start and I meet a lot of people having now gone you know been in business for many years I can so relate to the the startup which is the most exciting but also the most unstructured so how did you deal with that and how did you go from thinking about doing this to actually then you know take it to a serious business because I know in the beginning you thought it was just kind of selling a few things but <laughs> but now now it's it is it is a serious business yeah that's a great question and just quickly before I jump into it something else that you said is I think so important and can never be said enough that nothing is a waste of time I would never you know people are like you studied for seven years and then you worked for three years that's 10 years of your life like do you ever regret that and I wouldn't have ever reached where I am without having done 10 years of something I didn't really want to do to get to where I am now. Like every single thing is a stepping stone and I could never have started the business I started if I tried to do it 10 years earlier. So if you are in a chapter right now that doesn't feel like it's your forever chapter, don't lament that because it's teaching you something that's going to be useful for you later, even if you don't know what that is. And yeah, and can I just can I just add to that though? Like, if you look at your journey when you started selling your tea packs, compared to you know starting a cafe and then doing all the other things that you're doing, you would never have imagined that. So I think a forever job is perhaps uh, redundant now. Like, I think you evolve totally. as a person. And when I when I started Kiki K, it was all about organizing and home office. And now I'm you know I have a podcast talking to you. So it's you know I think it's you evolve as a person and and what you when you start a business doesn't mean that your business will end up looking exactly like how you plan because things take its own turns and also you evolve as a person oh my gosh absolutely and I think old me and this goes to the answer to your question old me was so rigidly stuck to a five or ten year plan that I already had precluded anything better happening because I was so stuck on the way it was supposed to look 
and I didn't leave any room for anything else. Whereas now I have no plan so that anything can happen. And it's actually, it's very overwhelming. And 2020 has forced a lot of people into uncertainty for the first time. But it's also the most exciting because when nothing is certain, anything is possible. And I've, I think the biggest part of that initial sort of transformation from, as you mentioned, one area to the complete opposite life structure, the biggest thing was just unlearning all the stuff that was no longer useful. Served me very well in one context, but held me back completely in this new context. So I think what helped enormously and what I try to now replicate every time I do something new is the fact that because we weren't trying to start an empire, it was easier to make decisions. It was easier to get started because I think dreaming big is so important. But sometimes if you dream too big, you get really overwhelmed and you can even talk yourself out of starting because it just seems too large. So I've kind of added a little caveat. It's dream big, but plan small. Yes. When I read your book, I wrote all the questions at the same time because I thought I'm going to have to have you on the podcast and (laughs) it was a plan before you have even had the book. But because I'm all about dreaming big, but I love that you added that plan small and also the other sideline there is done is better than perfect and that is something I talk about all the time so I love to talk more in depth about that. Yeah and that's incredibly difficult for me because by default I'm a total perfectionist and my job and all my training was geared towards being perfect literally moving punctuation around for days to make sure the final document was perfect and on top of that our role in those documents was to think of every possible risk everything that could go wrong and avoid those risks. So business requires the opposite of you. It does require you to keep up with the times and be flexible and be, you know, moderately risk averse and open to the risk of success as well as the risk of failure. So I think it helped my mind, which was at the time still very new to spontaneity and new to having a risk appetite at all. It helped me to just think, what do I need to sell one bag? Because if I sell one, I can sell 10. I'll have the infrastructure. If I can sell 10, I can sell 100. But if I think about 100, I'll be too scared. So just focus. You can only do one thing at a time anyway. So why think more further ahead than what's the immediate next step to make something from zero to to a business? And so we literally, I know you'll love this, we just wrote lists. That's it's so we overthink everything and that's why done is better than perfect is written everywhere for me because I love to overthink and all I would do is like get carried away and how how are we going to ship internationally with quarantine and Nick's like we don't have a business name yet we're not shipping international we're not shipping within our home yet like don't even worry about those things that aren't necessary so all we had we literally had bought the match already for ourselves which turned out to be too much the next logical thing is what Do you put the matcha in a bag? How do you find a bag? Everything was Google. We just Googled what kind of packaging is necessary to protect matcha, like keep it fresh. Who sells those? How much does it cost? How long does it take to buy them? What's the minimum that you can buy? And it was all just Googling and trial and error, getting on the phone, just figuring out what the options were and then making a decision and not agonizing too much about what the perfect one was. The next was how do you seal the bag once you've got the bag? Like a very basic listing, but, you know, I had never knew what a heat sealer was before. I had no idea bags got sealed by a heat sealing machine. Like, of course it makes sense, but I'd never thought about that before. So we bought a heat sealer because we Googled good heat sealers and we found a company in Richmond and we went, 
to buy that. And then we needed to weigh the matcha to put it in the bag. So we bought scales off eBay. Like everything was literally just figuring out logically what was needed to sell one single bag and then rushing to Officeworks to line up behind uni students printing their exam notes so I could print the labels to put them on the bags. <laughs> <laughs> like I cannot even tell you the first I reckon six months of the business were all just Google and then do and then mess it up and then fix it and do it again. But so unglamorous, unbelievably unglamorous. But on the outside, you need very, very little to convince other people that you've got a proper operation. You just need a logo, an Instagram and a website. And then suddenly it's a thing. Like I think we worry so much about how did you start the business you have now? But anyone can literally go from zero to hero in a weekend, if you want, you can, there's such amazing resources. You can build a website and an online store, take some photos and throw up a product now. Like there's no, there's no barriers to entry like there once were. And Google will tell you everything. So it was literally over the, I reckon a three to four week period from literally beginning the idea, scribbling the logo on a serviette to building the website, packing the bags in our knickers, literally, so we wouldn't get cotton or threads or fibers in the bags in a friend's garage like, <laughs> <we're> like drug dealers <laughs> but just packing it in bags to get it done sealing them putting labels on them and then we launched three or four weeks later and now looking back on that it was the best lesson I could possibly have to realize that so much of my life had been spent over preparing for things that wasn't needed. It was just a waste of energy and time. Like unless you're a, you know, heart surgeon, of course you need a lot of preparation. There are certain things that are very, very important to get perfect, but there are many, many things that aren't. And that, you know, what, what I thought was perfect and would have, I would have waited years if I was left to my own devices. I would have you know, tweak the label, the labels and the logos and the bags a hundred times before I launched. But what you realize is what you think is perfect isn't what your customers think is perfect anyway. They're going to tell you that feedback as soon as you launch. So you might as well just launch and then get the feedback and then perfect and tweak as you go. So I think yeah. that then convinced me that every other time I've gone to start a new like start a new project or start the podcast or the, or the cafe to just focus on the first customer. All you need is the first customer at the cafe. What do you need to open your doors? Then the podcast. What do I need to record one single episode? And I think you were the second person I ever recorded with. And I had only considered literally what I needed to record with like you and one other person. But that's all you need because the same equipment has literally served me. I'm still using it right now. Yeah, and I love that. I love that. We started a business in a very similar way. Like I had no idea. Instead of Google, because Google didn't exist when I started my business, I developed <laughs> Yellow pages in the big, you know, the big thick box uh, books that you might not remember. But um, I think we overthinking it. And today, the um, advantage of being alive right now is that you can start a business, a global business, really quite quickly by the tools that you just talked about. And um, it's just amazing. And I think um, it's a different generation thinking different ways. Like I look at Axel, like he just think about a guest. He has his own podcast, my 12-year-old son. And all of a sudden, he's already emailed him. Like he doesn't overthink it. He laughs at me because I, I do my live sometimes on Monday nights, my dream life Instagram live yeah. and um, and he laughs he's like because sometimes I say oh next week I'm going to talk about this and then uh, he said mom you don't you just go live and you just talk whatever 
feels right at the time. <laughs> and then he laughs at me saying, what are you going to talk about, you know, Wednesday the 23rd, 2023? <laughs> <laughs> and I love how it's just a different way. Like, you know, I'm a bit more planned, and but he just takes action. And I think that is just a really valuable um, point in how you started. It's just really, you know, if you overthink it, if you listen to your self-doubt and, and you, you know, your self-sabotage and all that stuff that we're going to get into that you talk about in your book as well, if you wait for that to be over, like that's never going to happen because it's by taking action that, self-doubt disappears or or it never disappears because the next time you do something new will appear again and that's just part of life totally and I think I used to really dismiss when people would say oh I just started on Google or I just started DIY in my backyard like I, I always thought that was just a romanticized way that they remembered it and that really they were just downplaying how it happened and of course I mean it of course it's hard work and it does take some some thought and some skill and a good idea but I realized why that story is so common is because that's literally how you do it. It yeah. is literally how people begin. And I think because I came from a corporate background where everything was so procedure driven and needed to be approved by such a strong hierarchy, it was hard to believe that you could get something done without a committee. But once I, now I've seen it, I'm addicted to it. I'm like, I want to be a new beginner at everything. Yeah, and it's a good way of looking at it. And it's funny when Paul, my partner, joined my business, he, he came from a uh, big corporate um, organisation and um, when he joined, he came to me and he said, I have a, something that needs to be posted. What do I do with it? And I'm like, you go to the post office. Like how hard can it be? But, you know, he was used to put it in a specific thing or had someone doing it for him. And I said, you know, it's the same, like what do I do with the cheque? And I'm like, go to the bank but you know you know checks probably doesn't even exist anymore but but you know it was just such a way and I think most of us are trained that way in the academic world and um and I was like I was you know I always worked for other people before I started my business but I was always entrepreneurial within that and always a doer so I think um you know for some people who think that they need to have the you know long education I think sometimes it actually helps not having that because I kind of just got stuck in and learned on the go and and learn by making mistakes and sometimes succeed and and progress um versus perfection Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about self-doubt a bit more and self-sabotage because you talk about that in the book and I will link to your book, of course, and we will talk about why you started to, uh, why you decided to write a book. But in your book, you talk about the courage to commit to it all. And I love that because um, when you have a big dream and you you think big and you, you want to create something amazing, without doubt, there will be self-doubt because if you haven't done it before and you're dreaming big, it's not going to come naturally and you will start doubting, can you do it? But actually having the courage to commit to all and taking action is, is such a good way of looking at it. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about that in your experience. Yeah, I think it's uh, unsurprisingly, but also surprisingly, what takes up most of my own podcast is the conversation around self-doubt. No matter how successful, no matter what age, no matter what industry, it seems to just be the most commonly experienced human reaction towards something that's unfamiliar. And my relationship has changed to it so much because I genuinely thought that that level of discomfort as I got further into business and as I got more familiar with this new life and this different world, I genuinely thought one day it would fade. I thought I would wake up and I would have like overcome self-doubt. But what I've realized is it's just a mechanism. 
it's just a reflex. It's just a protective mechanism that's actually a healthy sign that you're stepping out of your comfort zone and you're not getting complacent. And I now think if I ever, you know, jumped on a podcast or did a speaking gig and I wasn't a little bit nervous or a little bit kind of not dwelling on self-doubt, but a little bit, you know, feeling a little bit uncomfortable or having the jitters a little bit, I'd be worried that I was complacent and that I wasn't invested in doing a good job. So I think the real difference is that a lot of us listen to it and turn the volume up and let those thoughts echo and compound and believe that any negative self-chatter is true and that we aren't worthy and that we don't deserve to be here. And they let that dictate their decisions to kind of self-select out of things and not start because the self-doubt overcomes them. I think what's more important is rather than waiting for it to disappear because you don't, I don't think it ever does, is to just see it as something that reminds you that you are stepping out of the comfort zone. It's a good sign, but then just push through it. Like, okay, I don't have to listen to this. I just have to acknowledge it. It's like observing your thoughts as a third party instead of being those thoughts. You know, people always say you are not your thoughts. I never understood what that meant until I really experienced imposter syndrome and realized you can either be consumed by that and become the doubts and live your life not taking risks and not doing things that you're fearful of, or you can do them despite the self-doubt and just see it as like, okay, good. I know I'm not settling for familiarity and habit. I know I'm continually learning. I'm continually being a beginner because the comfort zone will catch up with you. That's the great thing about it. You take one step. I jumped from law to business. I was patting myself on the back for a good five years. I was like, I have done it. I never have to take a big jump again. Like I'm so comfortable. (laughs) But I realized you don't grow if you just make static choices like that. You're meant to sort of be nervous and worry about your capacity every couple of years. And and then that's when you start to agitate for change and betterment and improvement when you learn. So I think um, it's not a bad thing to experience imposter syndrome. It's very human. It's a bad thing to let it dictate your choices. And there's no shame either in phoning a friend. If you can't overcome that like vicious cycle of thoughts on your own, which is quite common when you're new to it, I've got more practice at interrupting that thought process, but at the start, just call a a person who's going to help you dispel those doubts for you. I always say you're the sum of the people, the five people you spend the most time with. I know you that quote as well. If you can't kind of break the cycle for yourself, lean on someone who's going to build you up and who's going to remind you that you're wonderful and you've got an amazing idea and, and don't call the people who, you know, are a little bit more risk averse and maybe don't see the vision like you do. Just, Pick the right people who will echo the thoughts that are useful to you and not, you know, the people who will echo the ones that are that are not so useful. Yeah, it's a really good point. And um, the people who are, um, I guess, a bit hesitant to creating their dream life, whatever that is for each individual, are the people who are worrying about other people or might not have the uh, network. So I, I put my book into a digital course because what I found in my life is when I have self-doubt or I'm not sure what to do, I always think who who can help me and uh, having that support system. So so the people who join my course, now when I see them, because I do a live every Monday with them, it's just amazing how they are thriving now in an environment where they actually um, – are with like-minded people and they all cheer each other on and they all share their progress and their challenges and help each other supporting and also inspire each other and it's amazing how how that work and the other thing um, in terms of 
self-doubt, the way I see it, which has been really helpful for me, is that if you have big dreams, and I often talk about this, but I think repetition is really good uh, for anyone who's listening and heard this before, is that if you do have a, a big dream and you, you want to do something, but you feel really, you know, you are doubting if you can do it, because that's, you know, if you haven't done it before, like this, you automatically will, I guess, question, can I act? can I do it? And then if you think about it and you're feeling fear and you feel a bit sick about thinking about, you know, can I do it? If you do it, you will have self-doubt and you feel you will have fears and all that kind of stuff that comes with creating your dream life in a big way. But in on the other bucket where you stay where you are and you know that there is something better for you or something that is more exciting or something more fun in your, you know, short time on earth, then you're going to be uncomfortable and not feeling great in that either. So I much rather feel uncomfortable in the bucket where I'm just going to go for it and I'm going to fail, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to you know make some mistakes and and uh, be part of failure and all that. But I'd rather do that than staying where I am and just live a safe and in my view, uh, not a life that I wanted to live. Oh, that's so true. I think there's a quote around that, the idea that the discomfort of change is better than the discomfort of staying the same or something like that. But you, yeah. you're going to be uncomfortable eventually either way. You're so right. So you might as well just do the thing that actually opens more doors and that that does push you forward rather than sitting in a stagnant position. And I think also what, I, like I think we catastrophize a lot as well. And that's good. That's, that's also a protection mechanism to help us appreciate when something does have big risks associated with it or is quite unfamiliar and scary and we if you haven't done it before of course you can't know what the consequences are going to be but I think our brain by doing that does kind of make us think that the worst case scenario is far worse than it actually is but once you really allow yourself to indulge in thinking about the worst case scenario like I think fear of fear is worse than just thinking about everything going wrong and actually confronting what that looks like because most of the time it's fine. It's honestly most of the time it's losing a small amount of money and looking a bit silly. And, I mean, if it's a big, in certain situations, if it's a big app that needs, you know, a million dollars of investment, of course, there's a lot more at stake. But for us it was like if we failed and we didn't sell a single bag, what's the worst that happened? We lost the $200 that we spent on bags on eBay. Like, and we look a bit silly because we made an announcement, but the net result of that is nothing. We would overcome that within five minutes. But I think without actually confronting what that bad scenario looks like, we would have been so afraid to even think about it that it would have become this huge bad scenario. So always think about what the worst case scenario is in real terms and most of the time you'd be surprised that it's not that bad. I think you had that in your book, Workshop Your worst case scenario when I read that like automatically I just thought in my view that staying where you are is the worst case scenario because you don't want to live a life where you just sit back because you're only here for a short amount of time so why not try new things even if you have you know you can always go back to where you were where you started and but you never will because you you evolve and everything even through your hardest times you evolve to the next version of yourself and it's often through the hardest time that you actually learn the most and grow the most absolutely yeah you never grow in a comfort zone and I mean they're wonderful and sometimes you need one but you don't become a better person and you don't evolve in any way when you're just repeating the same thing that's coming over and over yeah absolutely I know I love um 
how you talk about journaling through fears. How has journaling helped you in your journey? You are actually, I think the example in that chapter about journaling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've always been a very strong encourager for me to journal. And I think, and I know it sounds superficial to people who haven't done it before, but having a beautiful journal makes so much difference because it's a joy to open and it's a joy to do the process and you get excited to kind of commit your words and your thoughts to something. So honestly, I would never have started journaling if Kiki K didn't produce such beautiful pieces of stationery to journal into. And and I'm not just saying that because I, yeah, I don't journal well if I'm just writing, scribbling on, you know, a kind of binder book from Officeworks, even though I love those too. But I think what it does is very similar to what I think of therapy doing for us. It is so difficult to get a bird's eye view on yourself because of course we're capable of thinking about our own thoughts and that whole idea of metacognition is what makes us unique as a species. But when you're all inside your own head, it's still very difficult to distinguish between what your actual thoughts are and then what your thoughts about those thoughts are and you're judging your own self all the time and it's just very messy in there. And the most healthy and enlightening thing you can do is take it out of your brain. I don't know if you've seen Harry Potter, but the pensive where he can pull thoughts out of his brain so they don't take up space, mix them all around and then put them back in when he's ready. And I kind of think of journaling as that. When your brain is just a scribble, like it's too messy and everything's just unclear and you're overwhelmed because the volume is just pushing up against the sides of your brain. Journaling is what allows me to sort of Literally, I verbal diarrhea on the page. I just stream of consciousness, write whatever comes out, which sounds so weird because sometimes you'll sit there for a good minute before anything comes out. You'll write the first word and then suddenly it all starts coming. And that's what allows me to get it out of my brain. And then once I've started writing a little bit to sort of sort out how I actually feel about all that stuff. And the more regularly you do it, the less confused and messy your brain gets because it's like it's like releasing a pressure valve where this day and age allows our mind to be packed far more than I think it was engineered for. Journaling allows you to ease some of that pressure by just, it's almost like outsourcing. It's like outsourcing thinking and it does take time and it does take a commitment and it feels a little bit weird the first time you do a like dear diary if you've never done it before, but it's such a beautiful private personal way to just get some clarity on what's actually inside your own head. No one ever has to see it. Some people burn them. Some people keep them forever. Some people never read them again, whereas I like to go back and read them read them and reflect. And it's just like I can't speak more highly of the process for orientating yourself in this crazy world. And particularly I've suffered from quite chronic anxiety, which flares from time to time. Sometimes it's not even there and then sometimes it's quite crippling and those are the moments where I find it the most cathartic because sometimes the only thing I can do is just write what I think and it helps pass the time. It helps give me an experience that's sensory. It helps me look back also and look at what I was thinking at those times and look back now when I feel really good and see how far I've come. It's just a beautiful way to reflect on where you are in your life and I think it's the most cathartic, wonderful process. Yeah, I agree. I think actually one of the questions I get asked most from journalists over the, you know, over my journey so far is how I how I managed 
my work-life balance in terms of how did I not get burnt out when I started my business, working a lot, etc. And <laughs> they sometimes laugh when I say journaling because they just like what? And um, you know, they think that I'm going to come with the perfect you know balanced timetable, which um, doesn't exist in my world because um, I believe in work-life balance in many ways. But I do think that there are seasons where you actually have to work lots, and there are seasons where you actually need to work less, etc. Depending on where you are in life as well, and you know, having kids, etc. Everything changes throughout your life. But um, journaling for me has been a real saviour because, as you just said, it's it's really just taking everything out of your head. And um, I burn it because I often write the same thing sometimes for a week, and I don't want to really look at that. But I also do journaling, you know in a reflective way where I look back. So I do two different things, but it's been so helpful. And I think that is one of the reasons why I, I managed to kind of stay sane <laughs> through, um, you know, the startup phase. It definitely was, you know, hard and a lot of hours. And I started most mornings with um, my journal and just got everything out of my head and got a lot of thinking on paper and also a lot of decisions because sometimes when you – when you are uh, running your own business and you don't have all the answers that comes automatically because it's new, actually thinking on paper, a lot of the answers came through that way. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that I found is before I meditated regularly and when I first found that an incredibly uncomfortable experience, now it's it's like I've got a muscle that just flexes and I do it all the time because I'm so used to it. But I found that writing was like a moving meditation because it is mutually exclusive with anything else. You can't do anything else at the same time as writing. You can't be multitasking and on your phone at the same time as writing your journal. You're so consumed in your thoughts that it's like a forced pause because you can't keep going on anything else. You have to stop and take a minute. And so either as well as or instead of if you if you don't find meditation works for you it's a moving meditation and it won't always feel comfortable that's why it's cathartic it's not meant to feel pleasurable all the time like sometimes journaling is horrible sometimes you just want to finish and you don't feel like doing it and it's hard and you can't be bothered and your hand gets sore but it's the process that's really helpful and I've found that yeah enormously transformative but even in a positive way even sometimes I keep journals a different type of journal. As you said, I, I have two ways. One is just stream of consciousness. But every single time we travel, I keep a journal, even just dot points of what happens in each day. And I love, my, one of my favorite things to read is my old journals because you remember the time you went to the Eiffel Tower. You remember all the stuff that you bother to take a photo of, but what's in your diary, all those small random interactions with someone on the street or some funny little quirky thing you saw or some weird food that you tasted. Those are the things that human memory doesn't have the capacity to keep in your brain. And it's a joy to go back and remember those times of your life. It's all, it's a record keeping device as well as it is a therapy kind of process. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I often talk about, and I think I got it from Robin Sharma. I'm not quite sure, but you know, when you do journaling, you actually get to live um, your experiences twice. So for example, if you, if you go to restaurants and you, and you really enjoy that experience, and then if you journal about it, when you get back, or, you know, when you sit on a plane somewhere and you have some time to really reflect on it, you kind of live it twice, which is a beautiful way. And actually talking about that um, in your book, I think I came across 
cross gratitude, adopt an attitude of gratitude. And I love how you said that. So maybe just a short explanation how you live that because, you know, when we jumped on and we haven't spoken for quite a while, you and me, and uh, through this year we, we obviously keep in contact via Instagram, but, um, but this year has been a ch- challenge and both of us was like, you know, grateful for what we have and grateful that, you know, we both businesses survived through the, the challenging times. So talk a little bit about how you um, adopt the attitude of gratitude. Yeah, I think my main way is actually part of my journaling practice. It's to write two or three things every day that I'm really grateful for. And it sounds, again, super simple and doesn't sound like it could have the impact that it does, but it's impossible to feel the feeling of gratitude and be angry at the same time. And I think it's just a really easy, beautiful way to never lose sight of the things that you have. And that doesn't mean you can't strive to have more or different things at the same time, but it does stop you from only striving for more and only missing the moment that you're in because you want the next stage. I think it's a really, really important thing that we skate over so easily because we have so much to fill our days with. But it only takes like two seconds to write down three things and it can be as simple as the roof over your head, that you you wake up with working limbs, that you have family, that you live in Australia. Like, you know, it can be big, small, it can be temporal, it can be lifelong, whatever it is. It's just, it gives you such a, especially in the morning, I find it sets you up with a really positive and I'm trying to think of a word other than grateful. It just sets, yeah, no, the, I, I get it. <laughs> it sets the tone for the day really well and makes anything else that happens, you have, you bring perspective to that event. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I go for a walk every single morning and it's impossible not to feel grateful for nature. It's impossible not to feel grateful to be alive and, you know, being able to breathe. And if I go for a run to actually be able to run, a lot of those things we take for granted, but it's so amazing to actually think about it because then you really cultivate that attitude to, for gratitude. So thank you for sharing that. We are very much on the same level for sure when it comes to gratitude. I wanted to cover a couple of more things. Um, One is writing your book. So um, loved your book and uh, I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but I think it's everything that we've spoken about today, but obviously in a a deeper level. But what made you want to write a book? Because uh, I think we all have a book inside us and having done the digital course when um, I do my Monday lives with them, there is a lot of people who wants to write their own books. I'd love uh, for you to share a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I think I've always wanted to write a book. Even back in my legal career, the longer form writing, like assignments, I I voluntarily for some reason decided to do a a thesis for my honours and I loved the process. I love languages. I think you already know I studied lots of languages and linguistics and expression is something that's always... I've enjoyed so much. I love conveying a message and using the art of words to kind of convey it in the strongest way and to get people to emote about those things. And like even when I was writing on a subject matter that I turned out not to want to do for the rest of my life, I still was passionate about convincing people or making it the piece of writing do what I wanted it to do in the person. And so once I wrote that thesis, I thought I'm I, either I'm going to go on and work in case law where I get to read and write long things all the time or I'll go on and do it. I thought I might do a legal PhD because I loved writing. And then once I got into business, 
long form writing really stopped. In fact, even emails became like mono syllab, you know, like really short form, no punctuation, like not a lot of linguistic because you don't need it. And I lost for a long time. Firstly, I think I stopped reading a lot because I was a bit scarred from reading so heavily in law and I couldn't read for pleasure. (laughs) Took me a long time to get back to fiction and enjoying because I would read nonfiction and then I would get too overwhelmed in like my to-do list of how I need to self-better myself and I couldn't rest and, you know, it was just too much. I took a real break from reading, which also meant a break from writing. But I still knew in the back of my head that I love I love the process of communicating. And CCA as a podcast came about because the subject matter was something that I was increasingly passionate about and the business wasn't the right platform to share that I had a breakdown or that something failed or that, you know, you didn't get your order this week because I am like burnt myself out and, you know, that stuff wasn't appropriate to share on the business page. The podcast came about purely as a like, process of elimination of where conversations could live. And I always believe in the divine timing of the universe. If I tried to do it as a book, then I wouldn't have had the right book in me. And I'm so grateful that I started with a podcast and had a year before I started, before the book, a book deal came into my world at the perfect time. It was after a year of kind of getting all my thoughts together and through these conversations, consolidating all the things that I really believe about life and that I believe about pathways and choices and sliding doors moments and what really it does mean to seize your yay. And just a week after we got married, Murdoch offered me a publishing deal and they wanted it to be a book that was just the book form of the podcast concept of living your best life and stripping back those ideas of busy and productive to to focus back on joy and fulfilment They gave me from the end of November, actually the 1st of December, I think, to the 8th of January, so a very, very short amount of time. That's good to hear because I often say to people, they say, oh, how long will it take? And I say, well, take you as, as long as it, as long as you give yourself. Like, you know, because I think if you give yourself two years to write a book, you just spread it out over two years versus if you have that intense, obviously you need to have to make time for it. But I think um, that's a good one because I think a lot of us procrastinate because we think it's going to take like a two year project, but it's good to hear that you did it in a short, short way. Yeah. And I think it's the same as anything in life, the same as finding your joy, your right career. It's meant to look different for all of us. And you have to write a book the way that you write and you have to put some time into figuring out how you write. And I've never written long form pieces in bits. I can't do half an hour here, half an hour there. I've always had to do my assignments in one go. I did my thesis, my first draft in like, I locked myself in for five days and just sat and just did nothing but write. And I did the exact same thing. So if you'd given me two years, I think I still would have taken the same amount of days. I just would have edited it for two years. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought that it was perfect. It's so funny that I think the biggest part of writing a book is the thinking, not the writing. It's the thinking about what you want to write on. And I'd had it, my whole journey plus a year of specifically calling it a philosophy of seizing the A to figure out what my big themes were, what my big anecdotes were personally, what other people's anecdotes were that I wanted to share that I thought were most impactful, like your own. And the kind of flow of chapters and the skeleton and the main things that were, you know, must include topics were very clear before I really even started. So I think it was ready to come out of me, if that makes sense. And I honestly feel like the whole process was just a big journal 
a big journal entry that rather than being dear diary, it's, you know, the whatever of December, it was dear diary. This is my life. This is everything I've thought, the culmination of everything in my life to this point, everything I believe about life and people and humanity. And I kind of got to the end of it and thought, if I don't sell a single book, I've already achieved everything I could have ever hoped for in consolidating everything I know, but also in I will forever have a record of who I was and everything I thought about everything at this point in my life to look back on. And like, how could you give yourself a better gift than that? Yeah, love that. That's amazing. And I so agree. And it's a great book and I will link to it um, in the show notes so everyone can get a copy, a perfect one to read over the holidays for sure. I would love, before we get into a couple of quick questions, I think you are the queen of self-care and health. So it would not be good if I didn't ask you how you look after yourself in terms of self-care and health. (laughs) I think I'm the queen of telling other people about their (laughs) self-care, not so much about implementing it myself. Well, that's not true. I think you're a bit hard on yourself because you, you, I see you at different studios all the time and you are doing... You are really giving uh, yourself lots of self-care in terms of looking after yourself. Obviously, having eating at your cafe, you will eat really good, and you also exercise a lot. So, and you and you know, uh, I I don't know if you remember, but when you ran a half marathon, I was really inspired. So I reached out to you for oh that as gosh, well. Oh my gosh, that's right. <gasps> you, know, you know, there was a silver lining with COVID that it actually didn't end up happening, um, which was kind of good at the timing I went through. But I I uh, I now run on regular basis and I a regular well once a week at least I run 10k so um oh that's so you were very inspi- you were really inspiring uh, and uh, I reached out to you because I know that that for you um wasn't natural oh yeah and I was not a runner but same as business isn't it funny that we're so good at ripping the band-aid in business but we won't do exactly the same thing in exercise and just see how far we can go <laughs> but yeah I think um over the years it's definitely my weakest point, I think, and I, life is still throwing me lots of mini burnouts and lessons because I'm continually not listening to the signs. But my biggest revelation has been that I've tried all the diets, I've tried all the lifestyles, I've tried all the everything and all the, you know, purely F45, purely yoga. I've just tried every combination of everything. And the thing that works the best, honestly, is just to listen to your own body. It is so clever. It tells you every single thing you need to know about what's going to work best for you. And our composition is so different that we can't ever expect what suits one person to suit us as well. So the many years I've spent kind of experimenting in lots of different forms of eating or forms of exercise, now I've given myself a permission, I think, to just do what feels right at the time. Because not only from season to season and year to year, even from like different parts in our cycle, we're going to need different things. Whereas I would rigidly ignore that and think, oh, well, even though I feel crappy because I'm in, you know, week four, I probably should do my F45 class because I said I would and because it's in my schedule and that's self-care. But I think self-care is just gentle, flexible compassion. As long as you're making time to do what helps you feel your best and you're actually bothering to observe what works and what doesn't, I think that's the important thing. And I've learned that I need really strict calendar blocking out of resting time or I won't do it. I know that I need color coding. I know that I need all of Sunday minimum 
to be a total sloth. I even call it sloth Sundays because if I don't name it, it's not a thing and I can push it back or ignore it. I need a full day of not having engagements or not having my phone really, not having any expectation other than literally just do whatever comes out, (laughs) whether that's watch Netflix for 75 hours in a row, whether that's, you know, get out and about and do something or draw or journal or clean or whatever it is, just having that one day is um, some people don't need that. But that's, you know, I think the more I research myself, the more I figure out what works and what doesn't. I love that. And I, I, I'm so with that Sunday. And I, a lot of people actually reach out to me to say that that's one thing that I got out of this podcast is that uh, I don't book anything on Sundays. Well, when I say don't, some birthdays, etc., will of course happen. And there's certain things where I will say yes to things because I want to do it. But it's really good to have a day where you don't have anywhere to go and nowhere to, to be. And um, I love that you're doing that as well. I think it's just so good for the brain. And even if you end up doing something, it's just nice to know that you don't have anything booked and you can just choose if you feel like it in the moment or... yeah. Not choose if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually having a day where you don't have to get up for certain, you know, for a certain time or, you know, yeah, I guess with kids you also have to get them out of their out of the house for school, etc. It's always like very, you know, time driven process in the morning. And I love it having whatever happens. It's really nice. So I would love to finish up with some quick questions. One is what kind of advice would you give to someone who isn't living their dream life to kind of get started? The biggest thing that I think I struggled with even at the early stage in my life that I made a big change was just that I felt it was too late and that I'd gone too far. And so I think my biggest piece of advice is it doesn't matter how far down a particular road you've gone, it's never too late to just go back the other way and pick a different one. It really isn't. And there are so many examples of people who have started their thing, the thing we know them for in their 40s and 50s and 60s. Time and age is such a relative thing and it's such a mindset and nothing that you've done is ever going to be a waste if you learn something from it. So even if you've come 50 years down a particular pathway, why not decide now that you want a different one? Don't let anything stop you from just changing direction. I am so with you with that one, absolutely. Have you got a specific morning ritual that you can share with us? Just a quick one. Oh, yes. I meditate every morning. I meditate twice a day, actually, but the first one is in the morning. I try not to look at my phone before I've done my meditation. And then I think you know this one already, but every day, almost every single day, I take myself to the same local cafe and get exactly the same meal and do my emails there. So no matter what happens in the day, which is always different, I can sit there, have the same routine, get across my emails before anyone calls or before anything happens and just do that mindset activity of like preparing for the day. And if I don't, if I have to skip it for whatever reason, I'm a bit off. It's, yeah. I know I can make my avocado at home. I know I can poach my eggs at home, but there's something about that ritual that just sets me up 
so well for whatever comes next. Yeah, and I love that because it's a bit of a gift to yourself as well because I feel like when you go out for breakfast or go out for coffee or whatever you do that is just for you, it's it's not just about the emails or, or the breakfast. It's it's just that you are listening to what works for you and I love that. Yeah, and I used to think it was really indulgent because I was like, I can make that breakfast at home. But it's not even – it's not – like I couldn't invest more intelligently in anything because of what an impact it has on my day. Okay, so I know that you love reading as well. So I know this is hard a hard question, but I'd love to know if you have a favourite book and why. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, other than your dream life starts here, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many, but I think my lifelong favourite would have to be Harry Potter. And I think it's because it was I was just in that bracket of time where – I read the children, the earlier books that were much more children's books when I was a child and as it became a teenage book and a young adult book, it was when I was becoming a teenage and young adult. And I think it was so magical in a time where everything was growing up really fast and not seeing the magic in things and it was such a beautiful fantasy land. Like the way that she writes is just I can't even, there are no words to explain what she created for so many of us in our lives where we weren't getting that kind of fantasy or excitement or magic anywhere else. And those characters will live on forever. I can read them all over and over again. Yeah, and it's funny because I wrote down the other day that I want to do that with Tiffany. She's in that age now where it's perfect and um, I want to read them with Tiffany. And um, and then I wrote down that I want to have uh, J.K. Rowling on my podcast as my <gasps> dream guest. <laughs> but, you know, because her story is obviously extraordinary because she was struggling for a long time and everything that we've spoken about kind of relates to her story in terms of, you know, it's never too late and, and um, you know, struggling and, you know, you evolve and you change and look at her now it's just extraordinary yeah she has she was rejected by I think 12 publishers which and look at what it's become and I think yeah that if she'd given up on the 11th time Mm -hmm. she would have deprived us all of our childhoods yes (laughs) (laughs) definitely a person to be inspired by okay two more questions one is do you have a, a favorite Kiki K product or a favorite stationary product? Okay, my favorite Kiki K product, which I buy every single year and I have for I don't even know how many years now, is the personalized calendar that you can make with uh, it's black or white, so you can choose which side and you add your own photos. Yes, yeah, to do it yourself calendar. Yeah. Yeah. And you and it comes with little stickers and it comes with the pens that like are pastel, so you can write on the black side or the white side. And every year, I get all the photos that my aunties, they go on these big trips every year and uh, they're like second mums to me. And I can't even tell you how long. I have printed out the photos of their big momentous times and all our birthday gatherings and Christmas from the year before and kind of theme them per month based around what happens and print them out and make them and write little notes in the the, uh, margins and gift them that product. Oh, that's so lovely. I didn't know that. Yeah, since I, I, they have so many in their house from each year and they look back at them like a photo album because you can tear off the calendar part at the end so it just becomes like a photo flip book. Yep. And they've got like 15 of them or something in their house of all the years of photos that we've put together. And you know I love photos and memories and, and stationery and keepsakes and it's also arts and crafts like for one week in December where I do the whole 
thing every year and I madly like cut and paste everything, like literally get glue. Oh, actually, those blue dot things that you have. Yes, um, magic dots. Yes, the magic dot. So I have magic dot. It will be all over our bed cover and everything. It'll be all over my body for like a week in December every year. But it's just, it's like a tradition and it's its funny. You realize you're an adult, I think, when you realize you have your own traditions. Like that's when you know you're you're old enough to have a tradition and my aunties get so excited. They know it's coming every year, but every year they're like, oh, wow. And it's a lovely, lovely ritual to have for you, but also for them. So it's something for them to look forward to. Thank you for sharing that. That's really nice to know. The last question is, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself as a teenager you know or young adult Mm -hmm. I love that question Uh, and I honestly think I wouldn't I almost wouldn't say anything if I could go back in time I would just watch myself but I wouldn't want to change anything I wouldn't want to change my mind about anything that happened because everything that has happened made me who I am now and ended up you know leading me to the place I am now which is exactly where I think I'm meant to be But if I had to say something, I think it would be around just trusting the process and not trying to rush to the end or know the answer before you're supposed to and and believing that each chapter, even the ones that you don't like and particularly the ones that you don't like, are leading you all towards the right thing if you just believe in yourself and don't let the self, self-doubt overcome you and don't try and be anyone else. I think that's the biggest thing. I spent so much of my life, and all of us do as teenagers, trying to be other people and do what everyone else is doing and the happiest you will ever be is when you just stop doing that and don't care and embrace yourself for the weird nerd that you are. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I am so inspired now and uh, thank you so much for taking the time. We, it's a longer than usual podcast but I think this is going to be such a great this is going to be aired really quickly and um, I wanted to have you on because I think you embrace everything that I really truly believe in and there's so much inspiration in the last hour or so that we chatted about so thank you so much but I also wanted to say thank you for the beautiful message when we went through VA with Kiki K which was an awful time for me you sent me a little video from your taxi to the airport I think (laughs) (laughs) it was such a lovely message because those messages when you go through a really rough time is just so beautiful so thank you oh you're so welcome I it's so funny that I don't even remember that oh I do now but I didn't remember when you first said it and I think that's another really lovely reminder that you can make someone else's day so easily so I'm so glad that it that it did help in that really tough time and and that you remember it. (laughs) Oh, of course, of course. Thank you. No, I saved it and I I really, really appreciate it. I'm super excited to continue uh, watching all that you do and I know that you will continue inspiring so many people around you. And, again, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Isn't Sarah just so inspiring? I just loved our chat and I could have spoken for hours and I hope you loved it as much as I did. Lots of gems to try in your own dream life. If you need some inspiration to create your dream life, please join my new free workshop, How to Make 2021 Your Best Year Yet. The first one is on the 30th of January 
just in time for the new year and the other three is in January. So there's a few options and I hope that you will able to make one of them. Go to dreamlifestartshere.com forward slash workshop to register. Also, if you want to be surrounded by other dreamers, join my private Facebook group, Your Dream Life Podcast. And if you want some weekly inspiration, join my weekly Dream Life newsletter. It's just yourdreamlifestartshere.com and you can go from there. I'm linking all this in the show notes. Let's make 2021 your best year yet. If you love this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please rate it and leave me a review. I really, really appreciate it and I love reading them. So thank you so much. And by doing this, we can reach even more people. As you know, my dream is to inspire 101 million people to write down three dreams and go and chase them. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next week.